Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Coming up on today's episode, we have a heart-stopping conversation for you with award-winning Irish Times journalist Sally Hayden, whose new book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, has just been published. It's a profoundly important book that tells the story of the shocking migrant crisis in North Africa, which the Western world has effectively turned a blind eye to. It's based on interviews and real-time text messages between Sally and hundreds of refugees who tried to reach Europe, only to find themselves trapped in the brutal, inhumane detention camps of Libya, funded, scandalously, by Western money. Sally's investigation really began in 2018, when she received a Facebook message from a young Eritrean refugee who has been held in one of those camps. As the weeks and months passed, more messages poured in painting a picture of the horrendous conditions these people were living in and how the entire crisis was actually a result of European policy. I began by asking Sally how she came to start writing on migration issues. Yeah, I mean, I think probably like a lot of journalists, um, I didn't go out of my way to report on migration. I was working as a staff journalist at Vice News from 2014 to 2016. I was a desk reporter, so I just covered the daily world news. And there were drownings happening in the Mediterranean pretty regularly and uh, various other kind of, you know, tragedies like that. But I did the reports, obviously, but I didn't understand really what that means. You know, you, you hear these headlines over and over again. You don't actually comprehend the meaning behind that. And actually, it can become so routine that you almost don't even notice them anymore, which I know is also terrible. But in 2015, my editor then in London sent me out to Calais in France, where um, there were, at the time, David Cameron had just come out and said there were swarms of migrants who were trying to enter the UK. And so this was basically one of my first big, you know, chances to leave the desk. And I'd been given 1,000 business cards by Vice, which I had never really had the chance to use. And so I just went over and I started meeting Uh, everybody that I could like the people that I met came from loads of different countries like Iran Syria Eritrea you know across Africa across the Middle East and I was just handing out business cards and telling people to keep in touch to tell me if you know if if they knew of anything we should be covering because we wanted to not be you know writing these headlines that were totally meaningless but to be actually explaining what was going on and who were the people behind that and um, why were they moving and what were the complexities that weren't being conveyed, basically? Yeah, so that was, I mean, that was when I started reporting on migration, but I didn't, uh, the topic of the book, I mean, it starts with a Facebook message and it wasn't one that I anticipated at all. So it was August 2018. I just got a message through Facebook from a man who said that he was locked up in what he said was a prison. Um, in Libya and that he was with 500 men women and children and that they had been abandoned in the middle of a war zone basically they had no food no water and that's that's the genesis of the investigation that the book begins with so that was a while I already had a bit of knowledge about you know about various um, refugee related issues in different countries but this was a big shock for me because basically what he said was that they had all been left there as a result of European Union policy. And so that that kind of sparked me into action. I wanted to know more. Just tell me a bit about that sender, Sally, the man who wrote that text. The guy who wrote the first text, at the time he said that he was a 28-year-old. I mean, he was a 28-year-old, but what I worked out afterwards was that people share phones. So actually I was... 
you know, initially I was getting messages from one person, but then there would be other people who were actually having input into those as well in terms of just trying to convey that this situation inside. So the initial guy was an Eritrean 28-year-old. Um, he had fled indefinite detention in Eritrea. Eritrea is known kind of, um, some, some say controversially, but as the North Korea of Africa, it's a dictatorship, you know, there's slavery-like conditions, mandatory military service that, that lasts your entire life, basically, no freedom of speech, and huge numbers of people have escaped. Um, it's a very tiny country beside Ethiopia. A lot of people might not have heard of it, but it's constantly been in one of the top nationalities of people who do try to reach Europe. And the initial message, it said, Hi, Sister Sally, we need your help. We're under bad condition in Libya prison. If you have time, I will tell you all the story. And so for me, I, as a journalist, I always say, you know, I can't help you. I don't want people to get confused over what my role is. But I said, of course, you can tell me what's happening. So that's what happened. We just started talking and talking. He sent me selfies, GPS locations, uh, actually contact details even for his family members because I was so skeptical at the beginning that this could be real. And eventually, I mean, I I had contacts in Tripoli in Libya. I didn't know that much about Libya, to be honest, but I had contacts there. And I contacted a Libyan journalist and said, could this be true? Are there is there a war that's just broken out? And he said, yes. And I said, is it possible that there are 500 refugees and migrants locked up in a building in this area? And I told him the suburb and he said, yes, there is actually a detention center there. So just just to explain the importance of Libya, Libya is pretty much the country that if you have Africans from across the continent fleeing wars, dictatorships, um, sometimes drought, like anything that they want to reach Europe, Libya has become a a kind of transit point so people gather in Libya and then try to cross the Mediterranean Sea to get to Europe so it's the central Mediterranean route is the name of that route and it's known as the deadliest migration route in the world so this is what they had attempted before they were locked up. And Sally so now you have something that the vast vast majority of journalists do not have you're sitting in your flat in London but you have direct painfully direct access to people inside that detention camp. Yeah, exactly. And um, so, I mean, I don't know what anyone would do in a situation like this. You have people who are literally just begging you for help. You know, they were saying, please tell the world, tell people that we need to be rescued. Uh, you need to get us help. And so I tried, first of all, I didn't say anything publicly. I tried to contact the UN um, NGOs as well that were working in Libya, just asking, can anyone help? There seems to be a group of 500 people who are totally defenseless, you know, and, and are they were worried that they were going to be kidnapped by smugglers or traffickers or militias or, you know, bombed or anything that bad that can happen in a war zone. And um, And basically the answers came, no, it's too dangerous for all of our staff, they can't get there. And so um, for those first few days, it was just me in contact with these group of people. And actually, I mean, I have to commend the Irish Times. Initially, I started uh, posting things on Twitter. I started posting the messages on Twitter, just trying to get any help. And then the Irish Times also published a report, which got a lot of traction. Um, and yeah, that was, I mean, that was my introduction to this. And Sally, I mean... The book is actually painful, painful reading. I can't emphasise this enough. I also want to say that it's a huge work of, of serious journalism. It's not just a surge of emotion and anger, but the details in it are horrendous. I mean, we're talking about extortion, rape, torture, murder. Just tell us a little bit about what you're learning from these people. Yeah, sure. I mean, and I think that I should say I'm very, like, I'm... I, I'm grateful to anyone who reads it, basically, because I know that it's not an easy topic and it's a hard read. Um, and I know that you said there's been a lot of praise for it. I'm also grateful to those people because I think they were willing to do that because they knew that it's not a topic that people will necessarily gravitate towards. Um, the big reason that I thought that it's important to First of all, that I spent, I mean, four years of my life now documenting this and also that I thought that it's important that other people know is because all of these people that emerged were there 
in this uh, this detention center, this you know what they called a prison, as a direct result of European policy. And so, what I hadn't fully realized or fully appreciated is that you know we've all heard of the European migration crisis, like 2015, 2016, and then it seems to have died down. You know, in the public consciousness, people think it went away effectively, but actually, what has happened is that the EU has been entering into deals first with Turkey and then with Libya to keep people from reaching the shores of Europe. And so um, one way that they did this in Libya, in the central Mediterranean, Libya isn't a functioning state. So it's hard to have, you know, it's hard to have a proper deal with them. But they basically built up and trained and equipped the Libyan Coast Guard, spending tens of millions of euro on them so that they could carry out interceptions of boats of refugees and um since and and that's illegal under international law to return people to a place where their lives are in danger if it was a european ship but if it's a libyan ship it becomes legal so effectively the europe has basically pulled out its its search and rescue assets like there currently aren't search and rescue vessels you know sea vessels uh in that region but it's conducting surveillance. They're flying drones, helicopters, planes above the central Mediterranean to spot boats of refugees and then giving that information to the Libyan Coast Guard who then pull people back into Libya. So since 2017, um, more than 90,000 men, women and children have been returned to Libya. And when they get there, they get locked up indefinitely. So that detention center that I was first in contact with, it wasn't the only one. That's what I realized quite quickly. There are a series of different detention centers and people are locked up indefinitely. They don't have any legal recourse. They don't have, you know, any way of challenging um, how long they stay. They don't even know how long they'll be locked up there. And these detention centers have been compared to concentration camps by Pope Francis, among others. Um, so effectively, we have a situation where People who are trying to seek safety are literally being locked up indefinitely and, and many are dying inside those centers as a result of trying. And this is, you know, for me, the point of the book, it doesn't start, um, it starts with that point of interception because that's the point for me that I believe Europe is, you know, undeniably ethically culpable because this is European policy that is sending people back there. Sally, just go back a bit there and just tell me what you were you were hearing from these people who are in detention, because to a lot of people, as you know, in Europe, this made perfect sense. Pay other governments to keep those people over there. It's their sort of vaguely their home territory. Sending them over here is going to cause unrest and resentment and all those things, you know, overwhelmed uh, hospitals, etc. So to a lot of people, as you know, this made sense. But tell me what was so wrong with Libya that made it so dreadful. So the issue with Libya is that Libya is not a functioning state. It's effectively a state that's being run by militias. I'm sure a lot of people know about the history, but 2011, there was a revolution to oust Gaddafi who had been in power for decades and um, actually like NATO and uh, foreign countries were involved in that and one of their considerations when they got involved I mean I have a quote from um, David Cameron at the time was speaking about trying to as well stem migration that they thought at this point it was better if they got involved so that they could stop migration and stop Libya becoming a failed state but actually that's pretty much what happened um, in terms of it becoming a failed state and so you don't have a, a government that has oversight. So the detention centers are being run by separate militias, even though they're aligned with the, the I mean, there's multiple governments, but they're aligned with the Tripoli-based government, which is backed by the UN. But actually, they're being run by militias. And so in each different detention center, there are slightly different, uh, there's different management, you know, there can be different rules but essentially they're kind of profit making entities who are also like mil military you know they have they keep weapons there um, and they see this it's what I mean some experts say they've gone from a monetization of movement so smugglers were thriving uh, before this deal to a monetization of captivity which means that militias are profiting from keeping refugees captive yeah, probably this should come with an audience warning, but um, pretty much every kind of atrocity you can imagine 
was and is happening. This is an ongoing situation. Uh, yeah, rape, torture, starvation, medical neglect, you know, denial of water, for example. Like maybe the water can get turned off for a day or two days just as a punishment. Um, forced labor as well. That was pretty common. People being used as human shields. So war kind of breaks out intermittently in Libya and refugees tend to be kept close to weapons stores. So that basically the militias are trying to use them, I guess, to stop them from being hit. And there have been, I mean, in 2019, there was a direct hit on top of a hole full of refugees and migrants and an unknown number died. At least I think 54 were said by the UN, but it could have been more. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's like pretty much every sort of horror you can imagine, honestly. And then you have also children, you know, at the time that I started reporting on this, there were 640 children in detention. They're not getting an education. They're also going without food, you know, pregnant women, uh, some as a result of rape who aren't getting food, who can't breastfeed. And yeah, you have pretty regular deaths. Like one detention center that I reported on, someone died every fortnight on average from a lack of food and medical neglect. And included there was one woman that I met, Fatima, whose son first died of appendicitis. So she begged for three days for him to be given health care and nothing happened. He then died and then her husband died weeks later, um, I think of a stroke. And she said that was brought on by the stress of losing their child. That's what she's taught. And so, you know, these very preventable deaths that that are taking place that aren't being counted because there's no registration system. It's not like a, people's names aren't there. So even when the there was a direct hit on that one detention center where, you know, the airstrike on the detention center, I think one person was officially identified out of everybody who died. Um, and the rest were just buried in unmarked graves and we still don't know their names. So it's it's like really, it's not, you know, you can call them camps, but what, what you might imagine is not what this situation is. You see, this is the problem. I really feel, Sally, we didn't know enough about that. And this is the astonishing thing about your journalism. You You brought us inside that. I mean... You, you, you write that one man counted 29 people he had seen die. You know, women watching their husbands being murdered. You got a message saying, please help. Today, one person was, was self-dead, killed themselves by petrol because they felt so hopeless about the UNHCR, the UN High Commission for Refugees. So, Sally, I, I feel a terrible sense of helplessness what is reading this. But also what I get from you is a sense of anger as you count out the flaws and failings of the UN, the IOM, the various bodies whose job we think it is to stop this happening. So tell us about that. People who don't know your work and who don't know about the, the responsibility of the UN and all of this, tell us what that is first and then tell us what actually happened. So I think what I tried to document here, and I didn't have preconceptions, like I said, particularly in going into this, I tried to document exactly what I found and what I heard and, you know, had multiple sources for every claim and all of that. What emerged was this picture of a you know, of a whole system that has basically been set up to make sure that we're not hearing refugees' voices. So I know that you said um, some of this is shocking. And actually, I really hope that, you know, I hope that people don't turn away and just feel like they're hearing the same thing again, because this information was very hard won over, you know, many years. And that's because effectively we we have set up a system this is european policy you know but then if you interviewed the european border forcer um frontex they'll say well at that point of interception we we don't monitor what happens to people after that you know so they'll say yeah they do you know do the surveillance and everything to have people intercepted but at that point they you know they say libya is a sovereign state we don't have a role in monitoring what happens to them and so i thought that it's important that i document that and one um, big factor in that, and this again is European Union policy, is the United Nations, the way that it's being used. And um, I realized this pretty early, like when you ask a European politician or, you know, a commission spokesperson or whoever, 
about the policy of, of interceptions, they'll say that they don't approve of detention centers, but that they're funding the UN to try and uh, improve the conditions inside them. So they'll say they want them closed, but at the moment, the best they can do is fund the UN. And quite quickly, a lot of UN staff started contacting me and particularly, um, like you mentioned, the UN Refugee Agency. So that's the agency mandated to protect the rights of refugees. So their role basically is representing refugees in, you know, in high level meetings, uh, you know, where possible, giving them proper documentation, things like that. Um, And they are active in Libya, but they're receiving a lot of EU funding. And basically what um, what a lot of staff members started telling me is, first of all, it's very difficult for them to function there. Actually, most of their staff are based in Tunisia, not even inside Libya. Uh, so they don't have full oversight of what is happening. They don't actually, or this was very clear to me pretty quickly, they didn't have direct lines to the refugees inside the detention centers because it became that I was passing on information about what was happening inside of them to staff there. Secondly, staff who contacted me and a lot wanted to speak anonymously, you know, they don't want to lose their jobs. They felt that they were actually being used to whitewash the implications of European Union policy because publicly UNHCR will regularly thank the EU and say things like thank you so much for this funding we got to do this for refugees in Libya it's so great blah blah you know it's very donor focused um even there was one day that they said something like it's friendship day we want to thank the EU for their work you know their support for us in Libya and it's not being mentioned here that actually it's Europe that is behind the policy of sending people back and so If you heard that, you know, and you don't know that much about the situation and you're not hearing from the refugees inside detention about what they're going through, you might think that everything is okay or it's getting better or, you know, it's improving in some way. And actually now it's been five years and the conditions remain, you know, absolutely horrific. And it's best if they read the book to (laughs) understand properly because I'm not the most eloquent. But um, I just thought it was a fundamental piece of the puzzle because... A lot of the time, even with that first group of refugees that contacted me, uh, UNHCR released a statement where they said after a few days they were moved to another detention center. And a statement went out saying something like they'd been moved out of harm's way. And actually the new detention center they were in became the front lines of the conflict very quickly again. And they were again abandoned by the guards they were with and they were again left without food and water. But people were then seeing this UN statement online and going, oh, don't worry, Sally, they're safe, you know. And I was like, no, they're not. (laughs) Like, that's not, it doesn't reflect what's actually happening. So part of this book was kind of, I don't know, I guess, um, you know, I'm a journalist, so I just document, but just documenting the difference between that story of the on the ground uh, experience of the people who are most vulnerable and what is being said by, by people in power. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, Sally, what comes across, and I think what's almost as shocking, really, is this image of corruption and and arrogance on the part of the UNHCR. Am I correct in that? Am I right about that? Uh, I mean, (laughs) I guess I don't know if I can use the word arrogance, but um, like I said, I had reported on migration as well before this, and I actually went to Sudan in 20. 
uh, 17, I got a grant. So Sudan neighbors Libya and um, Sudan would be on the route for a lot of Eritreans, Ethiopians, uh, Somalis who try to get to Libya. They go through Sudan. And I went to Sudan in um, 2017 to look at, at that time already, the EU, they had agreed to spend like billions of euro. It's called the Trust Fund for Africa in 26 African countries, basically to stop migration. And so we were trying to figure out where this funding was being spent. And when I got to Khartoum, um, I started meeting refugees and none of them want, like none of them knew about the EU money, but they all wanted to talk about UNHCR corruption. So, you know, we have all this rhetoric about people should, you know, not jump the queue or there's basically limited refugee resettlement for what's meant to be the most vulnerable people. Um, I mean, there are far few, like far fewer spaces offered than are there are refugees. <laughs> like, and it's worth saying that like 87%, I think, of refugees are in developing countries. There's 26 million refugees at the moment in the world, I think. Um, but anyway, in Khartoum, the refugees were all saying that uh, that basically UNHCR staff were asking for bribes for them to be considered for resettlement. And those went up to $20,000 for a family. Um, and I investigated this for 10 months. It wasn't something that I could have imagined, you know, that um, that was happening. So it took me 10 months. I ended up speaking to former U UNHCR staff in Sudan, as well as a lot of refugees. And I published the report in uh, May 2018. And two days later, UNHCR suspended the whole resettlement program from Sudan, saying that they were um, conducting a fraud investigation. And they did find one staff member guilty in the end of soliciting bribes and abusing power. But for me, this, this again, you know, it challenged my preconceptions because as a journalist, you're supposed to question whose voices are we listening to and a lot of the time it is UNHCR staff that will tell us what we should believe about the situation for refugees. And at least in Sudan, I had seen that then at that point that there was, there didn't seem to be scrutiny on this organization that, you know, many people were telling me that there should be. And so if you had refugees then not trusting in that process, that would be the only legal process they have to be resettled to a safe country. If they don't trust in that process, of course, they're going to take an illegal route, you know, um, if they have the means to do that. I mean, what they were telling me is it's less expensive to go through Libya than it is to go through UNHCR uh, at that time. So, and Sally, what outraged me at that point is that you were being accused of being the enemy and of peddling fake news, in one case by the UNHCR uh, office in Tunis. You know, while while dozens of aid workers in Libya were telling you that the the UN agencies had allowed themselves to be used by the EU, effectively whitewashing the a brutal system, you were being called the enemy. I mean, I know you don't like to bring yourself into this. I'm well aware of that. But just, I mean, it's 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 adding another layer to all those difficulties, I suppose, for the refugees themselves. If if you're not being believed on top of everything else, if they are smearing your name, where does that leave the world? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's very tricky. I think, um, yeah, I think that people, if they read the book, they'll, they'll understand a bit more the complexities. Um, but yeah, as a journalist, I mean, this has been a hard story to report on. And this is why I really, you know, I am so grateful to anyone who reads it. And I also encourage them not to, think that this is information that they've read before because for example while I reported on this I received quite serious death threats um, and I was also under criminal investigation for a year so you know for me it's been quite a frightening and isolating experience I'd say working on this and um, yeah I don't know I just I just think that everybody needs to know about this and I think there wouldn't have been those efforts against me if this wasn't such a you know, such a, a top like a topic that's being silenced basically. Um, or that people don't know about. Like so yeah, it's 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 complicated. Of course it is. Uh, all of these things have an, have huge grey areas, but at the same time a death threat is a death threat. And it's one of the things that's made it impossible for you to report from Libya itself. And there were there are various machinations around that. Tell me a little bit about your efforts to get into Libya. 
Yeah, so um, initially, like I said, I just got this uh, message out of nowhere and I started posting these messages on Twitter. Um, and that Twitter thread got literally millions of views. I guess it went viral. So pretty quickly, I ended up in a situation where I was being contacted by all sorts of people um, with more information, but also became quite, you know, I was going on BBC, you know, on Al Jazeera. Um, I was being asked to talk about this a lot. And I didn't try to go to Libya at that early stage because I just didn't really. First of all, I thought that I was getting a lot of information as it was. And secondly, I didn't even really understand how I could get a visa to go there. And then I was getting like anonymous, you know, messages on DMs, like saying that my life was at risk. And then I thought about trying to go about six months later. And at that point, then I was meant to go to the Libyan border in Tunisia. And that was when I received warnings from uh, intelligence agencies um, of two countries saying that my life was in danger or it appeared to be in danger anyway, if I went to that place. Um, and so then I didn't do that. I got really scared and just stayed away from North Africa. Generally, the warning said, don't go to North Africa. So, um, so that's what I did. And then I tried again, early 2020. So I was, I, I had been writing the book, you know, um, and I was thinking I can't publish a book that talks about what happens in Libya in case people, try to say, you know, you didn't go there. And so they just won't, you know, even though there's so many sources, there's so much evidence. I've talked to so many people there constantly. Um, I didn't want anyone to be able to say you didn't go. And so this not to believe the information, basically. Um, so I tried to go again early 2020. I applied for a visa and then obviously COVID happened. Um, and then I tried again, I think, Late 2020, I applied again, and then I was kind of put on hold. So there was a period of about four months where I was being told every week, oh, next week your visa is coming, next week your visa is coming. Um, and eventually I was told right before the book deadline, no, you're not getting a visa. And then that was the end of that. I just figured at that point I can't go. And I strangely, actually, about two weeks before it got published, I got a very uh, strange email. I don't know if this is real or not offering me a free trip to Libya from the Libyan government saying that they're trying to change the narrative on migration and that they'll give me access to anywhere I want and that uh, they'd also offer me remuneration for going on the trip. So I don't know is that real or not, but it was very strange to get two weeks before the book came out. That is very strange indeed. They obviously had some intimation of the contents of the book, Sally. Sally, what's interesting for those of us who grew up with the image of heroic frontline war correspondents and you did a teeny bit of war reporting ourselves, maybe, and learned how constraining it can be to try and cover, you know, serious eruptions on the ground because you can't be everywhere and you're only getting a small part of the picture. But it's how you've transformed that landscape by, I know you did a lot of travelling and we'll talk about that in a minute, but you, all, a lot of this most important information was coming in to you on a screen in your London flat. What was that like? You were there. I don't know if you live alone or what your circumstances are. But what was that like to be receiving this, this extraordinarily shocking information on your phone from real people in real time? Yeah, I mean, for me, that was also very shocking. Uh, I've always been of the attitude that if you can go to a place, you should go there. You know, I don't like reporting where um, I'm remote. I... I you know, I, I would avoid that. But in this situation, it basically wasn't possible. So just to explain, like the way that people eventually my number or my contact details, my name, my social media was all passed around about nine different detention centers or 10 at one point I was in touch with. And I'd be getting messages every particularly at night because the guards would be watching. So phones aren't allowed. Um, the guards would be watching during the day, making sure that no one is on a phone. But at night, people would hide under blankets and they'd start sending messages. And so it would be about 11, maybe at night, suddenly my phone would start pinging and pinging and I'd be getting messages, updates from the day from all different detention centers, people telling me what had happened to them that day, uh, any anything they had seen, anyone who needed medical help. And um, 
yeah, it was it was just strange. And a lot of that I didn't report. I mean, that's why I wrote a book partially, because at the time it was too dangerous to reveal a lot of that information because the people were in like danger, danger at that moment. You know, there were situations where if I published a report, guards would come in the next day and sweep for phones or, you know, confiscate the phones if they could find them or um, you know, people were actually in danger of being tortured. And so, of course, I'd discuss with the sources, you know, do you want this published? How much information should we give? But there was a huge amount that I couldn't put out. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it was just a very strange, time, <laughs> strange period in my life, honestly. Like it went on for, I'd say, about a year or two like one or two years where I was like constantly on the phone. I could be anywhere, you know, my friends. I remember at my friend's uh, child's birthday party, a one-year-old birthday party, I suddenly started getting messages that there had been an airstrike in the outskirts of a detention center. And I had to pass that on to different agencies. And it was like, you know, suddenly my friends are like, Sally's, you know, Sally's really awful to be around I left you know I went to a music festival in the early days when I didn't realize this was going to continue and I left a few days early because I just constantly just was on my phone just trying to gather this information and um yeah I don't know like that that was the strange part for me was that there wasn't those communication channels between the refugees and the aid organizations for example or anyone else in the early days it seemed like those just didn't exist yeah I think, Sally, one of, the, one of the most telling lines I read actually was in the Financial Times review of your book where the, the writer said, reading it is like being besieged by a desperate crowd, yet it's journalism of the most urgent kind. And that was how I felt reading it. But I then tried to imagine what it must have been like for you in the middle of the night getting these beseeching messages and knowing that you were one of the very few voices listening. So... I know you hate these questions, but how did you mind yourself during those times? Um, I mean, I think I I don't have a good answer to that because I, like, it was very stressful. <laughs> so, I mean, even now, but now I think there's more, there are more activists definitely that have got involved or more um, even organizations that are in more direct contact with with refugees from what I know who are in detention. But at that time, like... It was really, I, I just, you know, even if I got on a plane, because I travel a lot for work, if I got on a plane, I'd have to tell sources, like, I'm not going to be available for five hours. And they'd be like, but what what if something happens? Like, what are we meant to do? <laughs> you know, who will we contact? And I'd be like, I don't, I don't know. I'm really sorry, but, like, there's no way to get internet on the plane. One of the strangest, I describe it in the book, actually, the strangest experiences was... I got brought to Tunisia. Um, I got an award for an Irish Times story from the European Union uh, for journalism. And they flew us to Tunisia and Tunisia neighbors, Libya. So I was, I think, 200 miles or something from this detention center that I was reporting on. But they brought us to, um, it was it was European politicians. They brought us to a cathedral and basically we all you know, went up on stage to receive our awards. There was no Wi-Fi there and I didn't have a SIM card. And so the whole time I was panicking, I wonder what's happening in this detention center. And um, then we had European politicians kind of handing out what, like there was wine and canapes and saying, isn't it lovely that we're in these sumptuous surroundings? And this was an award for migration reporting. And I remember they wouldn't let any of the journalists speak. The journalists were very uncomfortable about it because we were saying, you know, we're, we're showing on the back of, the screen at the back of this cathedral were like images of um, refugees, you know, in horrific situations. And then we were all being praised. And then there were people giving us canapes, you know. And for me, I had actually told, uh, I mean, I, I try as a journalist never to make promises. But in this case, I thought that we were all going to say something when we accepted the award. And for me, I wanted to say, like at the moment I'm in contact with a group of refugees who are in desperate need for help as a result of European policy because I felt very uncomfortable that I was receiving an award for the from the EU, you know, and 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 wanted to highlight that. And uh of course we were kept away from the microphones, all of us. So um so yeah, it's it's weird. I'd only described it briefly in the book, but that really messed yes. with my head a lot to be quite honest. 
I'm sure it did, because I think one of the things, you know, I mean, at, at one point, you, you, I think you refer to journalists as can be vultures. Uh, and we've all seen that, you know, covering a big story. We've seen the one, the glory seekers, and we've seen the ones who are second guessing themselves all the time and the ones who are in the middle who just need, know they need to meet a deadline. Um, so there's many different kinds of journalism, which I think isn't sufficiently recognised either. Um, but in, in terms of second guessing yourself, Sally, that must make it infinitely harder for you to report on, on, on stories. Because if you, if you go into this with, a, with an air of certainty, as many journalists do, and they know the scene and they know the actors and they know all the rest, obviously that's much easier. You take an angle and you write. But in your case, it's constant, constant second guessing. Yeah, I mean, so to be honest, at the start, when I started reporting on this, I wasn't second guessing myself, like at least about my role. I was thinking my role is just to make sure that everybody knows about this. And that was in contact with my sources. They were saying, tell the world, you know, we need the world to know that we're humans. We need the world to know that we're in help. We need our lives saved. Um, and ideally evacuation to a safe place as well. And so I just felt like my job was to report that this was happening. But one thing that I noticed happened pretty quickly was that um, basically I started to be praised a lot. I started to receive awards and I started to see my career advancing as a result of reporting on this story. And that, I mean, is actually very uncomfortable when you're doing, you know, when you're in touch with people who literally have not moved from a single room in, you know, a year, who aren't seeing sunlight, they're not getting food, they're not getting water, you know, and then I am starting to get more and more offers to go to this place, you know, do this thing, receive this award. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I taught in this book, I mean, it's important that I scrutinize myself and I don't even know that I've done it well enough, but, um, but I don't think that I'm a, you know, it's not like I'm the good one and everybody else isn't. Like I also said that I'm complicit. The fact that we have a system where, you know, refugees and a lot of this is also racism, isn't it? And uh, I talk in the book about where when you have a white face in the front of something that can attract a lot more sympathy, you know, like when Carola Ricchetta was arrested, the sea captain of Sea-Watch, um, and there were suddenly thousands of people in the streets protesting. And she says herself, like, that's, you know, why were they protesting for me and not for, you know, the tens of thousands of refugees who are being forced back to detention or drowning or dying in Libya. Um, and for me, I feel like that as well. I feel like, you know, I'm I'm obviously a white person, you know, I'm privileged. I can travel like a disgusting amount with pretty much uh, total freedom. You know, I have to get visas, but they get approved. And um, that's you know, that that's just not comfortable. And I think it's important for, for all of us to question ourselves. But but yeah, I say in the author's note, like really the person who benefited out of this is was me. Um, one of the things that I'm doing, I am donating a portion of the proceeds of the book to uh, refugee supporting initiatives. And I thought that that was important because I've reported on migration long enough and I've seen you know, a lot of situations where it, it tends to be the privileged white person who's the one who's making a living or who's profiting off um, even speaking about this situation. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't hold myself as innocent in this in this as well, but at least I, you know, I, I thought that, that I was doing uh, something necessary in documenting a lot of this. In terms of racism, Sally, are you constantly asked about Ukraine and the welcoming arms for Ukrainians compared to other people who are in desperate straits? Yeah, I've been asked that in pretty much every interview, but I do think it's interesting. Um, when I finished the book, Ukraine hadn't happened yet. And so uh, so it's not mentioned in the book. But at the same stage, it was it was pretty shocking for me. I mean, obviously what's happening is completely horrific, you know, and that's important to say, but also that people were being welcomed in such huge numbers because, you know, we have the European migrant crisis, the, you know, what you call the European migrant crisis in 2015, that involved 1.3 million people claiming asylum in Europe. And now I think it's 6 million Ukrainians or something have crossed already and when you look at those numbers, I mean, I know, of course, it's going to be a challenge to make sure people are set up and get the support they need and everything. But 
Also, the fact that 1.3 million people caused this huge uh, securitization of borders, this these policies that are sending people to their deaths, you know, that, that really is kind of shocking. And yeah, I mean, I, d- I don't know if you can say it's all racism. That's certainly what sources that I ask about it say. Um, that they have actually find it quite painful, people who have managed, because it's the small number that actually managed to make it to safety in Europe. You know, a lot of people die on the way or they um, they get locked up or they get stopped at various points. And the ones who have made it to Europe, I've been talking to a few of the people who were in detention in Libya for a few years who are now in different countries. They were saying it's quite painful to watch this welcome for Ukrainians just because they know that they're they're country people weren't offered the same you know they're thinking of the ones who died because of the european policy rather than because of trying to just trying to flee home yeah i think one of the one of the important lines uh, somewhere in the book is that developing countries shelter 87 percent of the world's refugees so it's not the west it's developing countries sally have you been asked about the rwandan solution yeah, um, yeah, and I actually reported in Rwanda for the book and also for the Irish Times a few times. There's a whole chapter on, on Rwanda in the book. So basically, I mean, the UK is doing something kind of specific in that they're sending people on a one-way trip or they're at least trying to. But Rwanda was already used by the EU um, and the African Union and UNHCR as a transit location for refugees in Libya. Like, So a small number are chosen for evacuation there's a small number of evacuations every year and um, those people tend to be taken to another country where their asylum claims are processed and they get assigned to a, a western country that they can be sent to and Rwanda became one of those countries in 2019 so it's an EU funded scheme uh, that basically evacuates them there they stay there for like six months or a year or however long and then they go along to another country and I visited there and I talk about it in the book I mean I got journalist accreditation before I went um, but then I tried to get access to the camp that they were being held in and I was basically stonewalled for a week every day they say come back tomorrow come back tomorrow come back tomorrow um, then I was told that I could come back another time and basically they had given me accreditation just because they believed that I will write good things about them. And Rwanda, as I'm sure a lot of people know, I mean, it's a, it has a very troubled past, but now it's a dictatorship and a police state and there isn't really freedom of speech there. And certainly with the UK deal, I think that there's a big question about whether there's going to be proper scrutiny of what is happening to people. Yeah, so I document in the book, there was a case in April 2020, where again, you know, initially the refugees from Libya arrived, they were so happy to be out of Libya, Rwanda, you know, it is a, it's a dictatorship, but it's like relatively safe in terms of being on the streets and things like that. Um, But then there was a situation where a minor boy in the camp said that the police chief in charge of the camp had had basically attempted to rape him. Um, And he... And that this was reported to me. I actually didn't report it publicly at first. I went to government sources. I told some people, you know, people I know in Rwanda, like what should be done because the boy wanted to, you know, the police chief was still wandering around. He wanted to make a complaint and just make sure that this man wasn't there because he was frightened. And um, what happened was the Rwandan police force actually, before there was an investigation, came out on Twitter and said that the boy had been lying. And then... There was no proper investigation. Then I reported on it um, for the Guardian newspaper, actually. And then uh, the Estates Associated uh, Media newspaper came out and said that I write refugee porn, basically started attacking me um, and saying that I was a bad journalist and that that I write refugee porn. And so I think that, I mean, it's just one tiny experience, but it shows you the level of control there is there and that there isn't freedom of freedom of free media, you know? And so if you send people there, it's not, it's, it, there's not going to be scrutiny again. You know, all of this is attempts to evade scrutiny, isn't it? Um, and you see that again in Rwanda. Sally, a few things before you go. You make no policy recommendations and that's not your job. But if you had a magic wand, where would we go with this? I mean, for me, honestly, I just thought, 
the most important thing is that European people know this is happening. Um, I, you know, I know that people, they hear reports of drownings in the Mediterranean and things like that, but I honestly don't think that the majority of the European public are aware of, you know, the implications of this policy that 90,000 people now have been sent back to detention centres that have been compared to concentration camps, that people are dying, that, you know, women are being raped, that this is happening in our names. Um, And that was, for me, knowledge is, you know, knowledge is important. That's why I'm a journalist. We need to have the facts before anything else can happen. And so I just hope that Europeans inform themselves because this isn't something that's happening far away. This is a result of, of us, you know, this. And it's also the complacency of Europeans. And I do think that people generally are kind, you know, like I, I believe in... um I believe that people have like great, uh, most people are kind anyway. They don't, they wouldn't approve of this necessarily if they knew that it was happening. And so, of course, I'm a journalist. I'm not an activist. You know, it's not my place to to propose anything. But I do think that it's, you know, it's, it's still being objective to say that you need to inform yourself about this. That's perfectly objective and entirely our responsibility. Sally, just a, a much broader question, I suppose, because people will always say when you say it's the it's it's the West, it's it's, it's Europe's fault uh, for paying Libya, paying Turkey to keep people in appalling conditions and all that. And then you'll be somebody will inevitably say, well, you know, it's to stop them coming. Let them stay at home. Why can't Europe help them to stay at home? Um, and then I, they, they, you, I, I know you mentioned the legacy of colonialism, that this is what African children grow up with, is, the, is, is, is hearing, learning about the legacy of colonialism, while Europeans spend most of the time trying to suppress <laughs> all information about colonialism. So is there something there that we should be looking at too? Um, I mean, I think that, yeah, there's, I mean, it's a lot of big issues, isn't it? But I think a lot of this comes down to global inequality as well. And as we all know, inequality is vastly increasing. And I think that there are big questions to be asked for anyone, no matter what, what their political view. And um, there are questions to be asked about the spending of European money, because this is our money. Um, like I said, the EU is spending billions of, do- billions of euro through the Trust Fund for Africa, across 26 countries that that money is uh, earmarked as crisis like crisis funding so there isn't proper oversight on how it's being spent and from everything I've documented uh, there are huge concerns about the fact that this money is going towards securitization of borders in a way that's actually propping up militias propping up dictatorships increasing suppression of people rather than improving their lives and I think that whatever your viewpoints, you know, the spending of money, like if we're making the situation worse through these kind of short term, um, short term measures, or, you know, basically what's kind of like an attempt to stop the far right gaining power. So you just throw money at the problem, but then actually you're propping up militias or making um, countries more unlivable or oppressing people further. People will always find a way to move if they're, you know, not safe or if they're if if they have to basically if they're forced into it and so yeah maybe the questions are like how how to improve those conditions one of the really it shows you that you can't anticipate where a story will take you one of those moments for me was I went on a rescue ship for this um for this book and I spent uh it was meant to be a month-long mission it ended up being pretty short but we've sailed off the Libyan coast and I had anticipated at that point I'd been reporting on this for a year and a half I anticipated that we'd get you know people from detention centers even I was wondering I wonder will we will any of my sources come on this ship you know that would be um you know I wasn't communicating with them or anything but I thought maybe that would be uh really exciting if it just happened by chance and um, actually the people that came on board were Libyans and they said that they were fleeing Libya because Libya had become unlivable because of the militias, that there was just militia rule. The militias has so much power now and nobody can live basically without being involved in the militia and it's just become hell on earth. And for me that, you know, that really epitomized also these big questions that now if, 
you know, so much, so much European money is pumping into Libya and Libyans are fleeing, you know, because they're saying that the militias are, um, are making things unlivable. That's, you know, that says a lot, I think. Um, but yeah, there's obviously more in the book. There's only so much we can cover. And all I can say is that it's an extraordinarily enlightening book. It's extraordinarily responsible, Sally. As I keep saying, it wasn't wit- written in a spate of anger or emotion. And less listeners are doubting uh, what they're reading. There are 65 pages alone of notes and references, just in case you doubt what you're reading. And a list of acronyms, which is very useful, and a guide to the kind of terminology that defeats us all at some point. Migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, expats, which I think is a great word. Um, the difference between trafficking, smuggling. I mean, this is a this is a book that to me encompasses everything and probably the largest issue of our time. It's probably on a, on a par with climate change and is all indeed inter, intermingled with climate change, Sally, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, sorry, one thing that I should say as well, I mean, it's not just a book, it's not just like a list of horrific things happening. I tried to get in the human stories of people, you know, love stories, uh, family ties, things that, you know, even even jokes that people were telling inside the detention centers. Like, I think that that was very important for me because those were things that I couldn't fit in media reports. And so um, a lot of it is just also about what life is like when you're, when you're going through this situation, like the day-to-day of just being locked up somewhere and having to make it through, you know? Um, and I hope that some of that, you know, it's it's not just <laughs> it's not just a terrible list of tragedy, you know, because I don't no, think that's no, I, I don't I, think that's fair not. to people who are yeah. there either. No, it makes it very readable. And I just think it's kind of funny when you talk about about what it what it feels like for people to be locked up in those kind of conditions. And while you were writing this we were complaining bitterly about suffering from pandemic lockdown. <laughs> so so it's all relative, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I actually had my, I mean, I know I was saying that I'm privileged to be able to travel for uh, a lot of, I think when I got the book deal, I was in Uganda. I was there for about seven months when they shut the borders because of coronavirus as well. So um, yeah, and we had a travel ban. You couldn't even travel between cities for a lot of that. So I ended up in one small small city in the north of the country. And yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, it, it shows that these things, I mean, I think also coronavirus, that was another thing that I was thinking maybe will make people more empathetic, but the Ukraine war and coronavirus, you can suddenly see how someone's life can be turned around or things can change in in a very short space of time. And it's been incredibly frightening for all of us. But I also hope maybe that makes people have some more empathy for people from other countries who have been experiencing these sorts of things, but, you know, haven't necessarily had them appreciated by those in other countries. Uh, Sally, thank you. I know you were up in the middle of the night marking you know, the, the US uh, launch of The Fourth Time We Drowned as I say, an extraordinary book. And I know you're midway through COVID and, and bearing up extraordinarily well. Um, and I don't know where you go from here or if you maintain this pace that you're at or if you're going to continue working in this world, are you, in, in that particular field? Yeah, well, I'm actually, since November, I'm on contract as the Irish Times Africa correspondent. Um, so I'm working a lot for you guys. But um, yeah, I need to go back to... To an African country, I'm not sure exactly where I'll go next, but I was just in Somalia, so I'm sure some people read my reports from there. And again, that was a, a story that was interlinked with this. Um, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> just carry on. Read Sally of the Irish Times, everybody. Sally, thank you so much for your time and for getting up to talk to us with your COVID and all. And the very best of luck with all you do. It's very important work. Yeah, thank you for having me, and thanks for reading the book. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guest, Sally Hayden. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on iTunes, Spotify and all good podcast apps. Also, if you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle, Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time. Thanks for listening.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 